Author David Brin has written numerous very well-known, very well-written books, including the dystopian science fiction novel The Postman, which was a much better book than a movie, by the way. My favorite of his books is one that's called Existence, and it was written back in 2012. And in this book, there is a near-future journalist-ish character named Tor. And I say journalist-ish because this character doesn't work in the same journalism climate we have today, nor does she use the same tools of the trade. Tor makes use of so-called smart mobs to aggregate and report information. She also uses technologies like TrueView glasses that overlay an interface onto the world. Augmented reality, you might call it in today's lingo. And these glasses, in addition to the overlays that they provide, also give her continuous access to a personal artificial intelligence assistant and operating system. This AI helps her manage her data and share what she's seeing and anything else she wants to share with her followers, with her audience. But it also helps her manage her smart mob. What makes this mob smart is the mesh, which is the contemporary in-book version of the internet. And on the mesh, there's a ranking system called credibility. And being able to tell, using this score, who is credible for which topics, allows her to interact with and manage great big groups of people who have very different skills and expertise. And it even allows her to poll her audience to see which topics she should look into next and find out where her resources are best expended. Those with high credibility scores on relevant topics are also weighted more heavily by the AI, which helps it filter for relevant content, but it also factors into all kinds of other functions. And those who provide information that is valuable and who contribute regularly over time, attain higher credibility ratings, which gives them the opportunity to participate as more important vectors in these smart mobs, but it also allows them the opportunity to earn money via microtransactions. The idea here, then, is that the crowd actually is wise, as in the phrase, the wisdom of the crowd, but only if managed and filtered correctly. Otherwise, any sufficiently large crowd eventually becomes inundated with trolls and ideologues and well-meaning but ultimately ignorant everyday people, which makes that crowd a lot less useful if you're trying to produce something accurate and timely or if you're working on a deep, multifaceted investigation of some sort. I love this prediction about where journalism might go next. It's an excellent extrapolation of technology and the journalism scene. It's a wonderful concept overall, and something that I've thought about a lot since I read the book many years ago. The book, as I mentioned, was written in 2012, and during the time since it was released, 
a lot of these technologies that were predicted from the personal AI operating system to the augmented reality user interfaces have become a lot more mainstream, if not completely ubiquitous just yet, but give it a couple of years. But although our technology is becoming more and more science fiction-y, more and more capable, the crowd that it's attached to, that mob that we hope to make into a smart mob, unfortunately is lagging behind the hardware and software that is predicted in this book and in many other works of science fiction. Yes, we have far more means of interacting and creating today than ever before in history, but our ability to filter all that information, if anything, has gotten worse over time. There are tools out there that allow the truly dedicated to wrangle some control over their communication platforms, but even the most dedicated information consumer or distributor would have trouble pulling together complete, accurate, well-honed pieces using connections found, vetted, and utilized online, much less do so quickly enough to be competitive in a fast-paced journalistic marketplace. And past attempts to do so, to use these networks in this way, have been not great. Take, for example, the case of Sunil Tripathi. Sunil disappeared on March 12, 2013. A little over a month later, on April 15th, a bomb went off during the Boston Marathon. The FBI released blurry, grainy photos of two suspects on the 18th, three days after the marathon. And within minutes of them releasing those photos, a user on Reddit posted one of the blurry suspect photos next to a photo of Sunil, who was still missing, and whose family had been posting frantically on Facebook and any other platform they could to try and locate their son. Things spiraled out of control within hours. Angry, threatening messages began to appear on the Facebook page that Sunil's family had set up to try and find their missing son. And then ABC News called Sunil's family to see if they could confirm that suspect number two from the bombing was their son. Sunil, it should be noted, had a history of depression, just crippling depression. And the family had hoped that by setting up this Facebook page, they might be able to reach him if he decided to go online somewhere and search for himself or to check in on his family while he was apart from them. But now that page that they had hoped would serve to reach out to their depressed runaway son was now flooded with hate and vitriol from strangers on the internet, rather than with loving messages from his family. And so the family shut down the page, and in doing so, triggered the interest of a new collection of gossip mongers, redditor conspiracy theorists, and online wannabe detectives. A lot of hubbub was escaping from the forums now, and actual journalists and other actual reporters began to tweet and post openly about the theory that Sunil was suspect number two despite the fact that there was still no evidence that this was the case other than that post in Reddit with the photos shown next to each other. Early the next morning, a Twitter user, who is also a police scanner enthusiast, 
posted that he had heard the police on a scanner confirm that Sunil was their guy, that he was suspect number two. And a journalist in Hartford, Connecticut, picked up that information and then reshaped it into a tweet and shared it with his followers. That tweet was then shared by a BuzzFeed journalist to his 80,000 plus followers, and his tweet said, quote, Wow, Reddit was right about the missing brown student per the police scanner. Suspect identified as Sunil Tripathi, end quote. Numerous journalists and other social media celebrities, including Perez Hilton, and one of the accounts maintained by the hacker group Anonymous, picked things up from there, blaring their social media horns about how Reddit got it right, and how this might be the beginning of a new kind of investigative journalism, run by the smart mob. This, however, was not the case. This back-and-forth echo chamber investigation took place in the middle of the night, and by the next morning at 5.16 a.m., Pete Williams announced on NBC that Sunil was not involved, that he was not suspect number two. Suspect number two was a man named Jokar Zarnaev. But even this did not immediately silence those who had experienced the echoes of the online world the night before. Threatening messages continued to roll in even as the true perpetrators of the bombing were being chased and eventually killed by the police. As the dust settled in the following days, Sunil's family continued to look for him, working their way past new barriers that had been erected as a result of that online investigation, like homeless shelters that refused to speak to them because they had heard that their child was a terrorist and they do not help terrorists. Sunil's family attempted to use all this attention to amplify their message. Our son is missing. He's not well. We are hoping to get your help in finding him. One week after that night and morning of online investigatory malfeasance, Sunil's body was pulled out of the Providence River. A public apology was offered to Sunil's family on Reddit the day before the body was found, and mea culpas were uttered around the online news media ecosystem. From the BuzzFeed reporter who had tweeted that unconfirmed information, from a New York Times reporter who had done the same, questions were asked by these insular and powerful communities how they might reckon with the power they had suddenly found themselves wielding. How might they better regulate themselves in the future to prevent this from happening again? This was not the first large-scale, crowdsourced, online manhunt of this kind, but it was the most notable, arguably, at the time. There have been more in the years since on Reddit and 4chan and other online hubs of all shapes and sizes, and there will no doubt be more in the coming years. We are at a time right now in history where we have an abundance of methods of communicating, but we do not yet have the reliable, consistent ability to quickly and accurately affix credibility to a bit of information. But all the same, a democracy requires an educated populace, and we continue, for many reasons, to seek out information in an attempt to understand the world around us. 
and to fill in the gaps in our personal knowledge webs. We want to be informed and to share information with each other. We just don't always know how best to accomplish this and how to do it with as little risk to innocent people as possible. What I want to talk about today is this journey that we are on to figure out how to best use the tools we have at our disposal and how to do so without completely demolishing the legitimacy of the press with a slew of falsehoods and partial truths in the meantime. And to start this conversation, we will address a recent happening that has divided the journalism world and left some wondering what the press even stands for these days. You are listening to Let's Know Things. I'm Colin Wright. Let's Know Things is a listener-supported show, which means it is brought to you by people like you. If you pop on over to letsknowthings.com and click on the Contribute page, you will find a slew of different ways that you can contribute to the show, if you care to do so. Leaving a review on iTunes, subscribing to the show, sharing it with a friend, these are all very valuable contributions, as is something monetary, like setting up a recurring payment or contributing a book and episode. Any and all options are very much appreciated. Thank you so very much to those of you who have already done so, and thank you in advance for anybody who is considering doing so in the future. Another great way to help out the show is to check out our sponsors. HostGator is the hosting company that I have used for many, many years and very, very happily. And if you go to HostGator.com LKT, you will receive a discount off of their already excellent prices. And if you enjoy podcasts, chances are you will enjoy audiobooks. They are just great, big, long podcasts. If you go to audibletrial.com LKT, you will receive a free month of Audible plus an audiobook of your choice. And that is yours to keep whether or not you stick with Audible past that free month. This is a great way to try out audiobooks if you have not before, and if you are not yet committed to the idea of listening to books rather than just reading them. Again, that's audibletrial.com LKT. All right, let's get back to the show. The article that I want to unspool today comes from BuzzFeed, and it is entitled these reports allege Trump has deep ties to Russia. Here is what happened. A dossier had been circulating around political and security circles for months. A journalist from Mother Jones wrote a story that was based on the information from the dossier back in October, but he did not publish any specifics. And the reason that this journalist and all the other people who had gotten a look at this dossier did not publish it was that they could not independently verify its claims. In journalistic tradition, the saying, when in doubt, leave it out, carries great weight. Were some of the claims potentially legitimate? Yes. Was the informant, a former British intelligence officer, credible? Quite possibly. In fact, as the document circulated around the U.S. intelligence agencies and were summarized for both Obama and Trump 
One of the reasons given for keeping them informed about the dossier was that the source of it, of the information, had been so credible and reliable in the past. But this is not sufficient confirmation for the purposes of good fact-based journalism. So the major networks did not publish anything about it, or even refer to it in any meaningful way. None of them, that is, except for BuzzFeed, which was kind of an interesting move in a couple different ways. For one, BuzzFeed has only recently begun to establish itself as a real legitimate news outlet by publishing some remarkably well-produced in-depth stories in recent years. But before that, they were simply a clearinghouse for all the most salacious, clickbaity things you could possibly find on the internet. Today, that is still maybe 90% of what they do, but the other 10% consists of really solid journalism by very serious journalists. And that 10% of their efforts had begun to earn them real respect from the other big players in the journalism world. But then they published a rundown of this dossier. The article that gave the outline of what the dossier contained was presented with a header that said, the allegations in this dossier are unverified. And the report that contain this information also contains errors, the most obvious of which are misspellings of names. This was a move that surprised a whole lot of people, because a whole lot of these other very serious journalistic entities were aware of this dossier, but did not print it, did not publish anything about it, and BuzzFeed had broken ranks with them. But in a lot of ways, this was a move that kind of fit squarely within BuzzFeed's wheelhouse, when seen through the lens of their clickbait tendencies. Though you may not have heard about the backroom discussions and the journalistic scandal hubbub around the dossier and its release, you almost certainly heard about what it contains, namely allegations that Russia has what they call compromat on Donald Trump. And compromat is a Russian portmanteau word for compromising material. And it is common practice within Russian politics to make sure that you have compromat on both your friends and enemies in case you ever need to have leverage on them, or taking it a step further, want to outright blackmail them. The dossier alleged that the Russians had tapes of Donald Trump engaged in sexual acts, and you've almost certainly heard the jokes about golden showers and Russian prostitutes. This document is where that information, perhaps real, perhaps not, came from. Now, Trump, for his part, denied everything. Though, I think, if we've learned anything about the man since he became a politician, it's that truth has a very different definition for him than for most people. But the response from the press was especially interesting here, because it showed a rift that is emerging between different entities in the journalism space. And many of these entities would have otherwise seemed undifferentiated based on the work that they produce and the high quality of journalism that they aim for. The president of ProPublica, for example, which is a publication known to be one of the most unbiased, independent, information-centric bodies in journalism today, praised the choice that BuzzFeed made to write about the dossier 
saying that it would give non-press, non-journalistic, non-politician citizens access to evidence that they could then consider for themselves directly. On the other hand, a columnist and editor from the New York Post said, probably rightly, quote, In my experience, there is no source of whom you need to be more skeptical and whose information you need to verify to the letter before you can even begin to think of publishing it than a, quote, intelligence source, end quote. Most larger mainstream media entities like the New York Times and the Washington Post have still resisted the urge to publish the dossier in full, though after BuzzFeed published their piece about the dossier, Slate followed with the entire document, and BuzzFeed later amended their article to include the same. Numerous other sites have done the same since then, though most of the bigger players have still not published it or any significant articles about it, beyond reporting on the debate within the press including, and probably summed up best, by a piece that I will link to in the show notes by the Washington Post, which is entitled, How BuzzFeed Crossed the Line in Publishing Salacious Dossier on Trump. There's a lot to unspool in this story, and it's a very tree-like fragmentary type of discussion to have, but let's try to take it piece by piece and cover some of the main branches. First, there's the angle of what this says about the business model behind journalism and other media today. This model, that of income derived primarily from advertisements, is not at all new, but the method in which we measure interactions, that is, clicks and page views and video plays, are still quite young, and as a result, they have yet to be refined and optimized. BuzzFeed and many, many, many sites like it essentially exist only to attract clicks. There's no grander purpose in their existence than that, even though they might claim otherwise. There are those within BuzzFeed that have been trying to make sure that that 10% of serious work that is done by their organization becomes a real meaningful, consistent thing and a good way to spend some of the money that they have earned from all those clicks that would help them generate then and put out into the world something good beyond just pure income for their shareholders. But the long and the short of things is that media in general exists for this purpose, and media companies that came into existence online are especially good at it. That something like this would be shared by a company that's more about publishing quickly and often and scooping up all those clicks however possible, should not be terribly surprising. That it's now tangled up with other more long-standingly legitimate news networks is a somewhat novel kink in the story, but otherwise the news of BuzzFeed publishing a salacious dossier would be something like the National Enquirer, which was a well-known grocery store tabloid from the 90s in the United States that published laughably fake news, It'd be like them getting their hands on something related to a Bill Clinton scandal and deciding to run with it. It would be a little weird based on the source and the topic, but since they go for shock and scandal above all else, it would make perfect sense and surprise no one. It would be very much aligned with their overall business model. And this is a model that more and more companies have been attempting to mimic. 
Even the ultra-well-respected and consistently integral news companies like the New York Times have been increasing the amount of puff news that they produce. That is, stuff that isn't really news, but instead things like recipes and gossip and opinions that are untethered from anything newsworthy, and magazine-style advertorials. This almost certainly is not what the journalists in the ranks of these institutions would prefer to be doing. But when you have a team of hundreds of people that you have to be able to pay, you have to compete in whatever ecosystem you find yourself in. And the modern journalistic publishing ecosystem is dominated by clicks. And as we've learned from BuzzFeed and their ilk, you earn clicks by generating shock, awe, scandal, and beating everyone else to the punch. So the business models are evolving, which will likely result in more previously unthinkable moves from folks that you would have expected more from in the coming years, because they have to pay the bills. And you can make the argument that by publishing a certain percentage of crap, you are able to pay for all the really good stuff that would otherwise not be funded. So there's an argument to be made for this shift, even if it is widely considered to be a negative shift by most people in the industry. Another major branch to consider is that we are at a turning point when it comes to defining what journalism actually is and is not. I think many traditional journalists of the Woodward and Bernstein variety would tell you that it's about reporting facts and making sure those facts are legitimate before reporting them. But there are new players in this space that are often lumped in with the news sites and the newspapers of old. Is, for example, WikiLeaks a journalistic entity? What about an independent blogger reporting on a particular beat, like military hardware or Chinese-Russian relations? Is an on-location live reporter who produces videos from hotspots around the world but who only publishes on social media a journalist? What about talk radio hosts like Rush Limbaugh? What about podcasters? Well, let's do the easy ones first. I am not a journalist. There are some podcasters who are, but content like this is not journalism. Rush Limbaugh and other talking heads are not journalists. Opinion might help provide relevant perspectives to the news, but it's only ever an accessory. Journalism is held to far higher standards than what I do, and the same goes for talk radio hosts and opinion columnists and the like. But what about all these whistleblowers and leakers, though? The WikiLeaks, the anonymous bloggers, and even the journalists who have built entire news entities from intelligence gleaned from these leaks, like The Intercept, which was founded by some of the people behind Edward Snowden's famous disclosure of NSA documents. This, to me, is a gray area that I don't know that we could easily pull apart. I think you have to look at each case individually. A lot of journalism is based on information that is gleaned from these leaks, and so, to me, a publication like The Intercept is very much journalism. But I also think that most of these leaks are just starting points. They are resources that need to be harvested and refined into something that is comprehensible and palatable and digestible by the public at large. 
And I think a lot of these sources, including The Intercept, would not publish a leak just to publish a leak. They go through and try to confirm beforehand. And they'll even go through and censor certain information if they think that, left uncensored, it will cause somebody to come to harm. So even within that realm, there is a fairly consistent argument being made in favor of verifying first and verifying well before you push something out into the world for publication. The contrary argument to this, though, is the one espoused by BuzzFeed and by ProPublica's president after the former published the Trump dossier. This argument is that people have the right to know information that is pertinent to voting and making other decisions as members of free societies. And though some of that information cannot be confirmed, in some cases, by its very nature, confirmation is all but impossible. And that information should still, in some circumstances, be made available, be shared, because it allows the public to know about the discussion and about the accusations and about the potential, in this case, that they have elected a man who may be making decisions based on his being blackmailed by a foreign power. This is an argument that I think makes a lot of sense to a lot of people, at least initially, but it gets a lot more convoluted and complicated if you go a little deeper and think a little more about it. Because then it becomes pretty clear why so many people have so many deep concerns about just making available whatever information comes into your hands just because you think it may be relevant, if not verifiable. The most obvious downside, I think, of this kind of reporting is that you stand a very good chance of, at some point, falsely accusing someone of something horrible and having that information stick to them for life. With all the other scandals that Trump is embroiled in, I am guessing he's not super concerned about this dossier one in particular, but imagine if it was something else and someone else, a grade school teacher being accused of pedophilia, maybe a retired veteran being accused of war crimes, a local car salesman being accused of fraud. In all these cases, I'm guessing that the very act of connecting their name with these labels would be enough to radically change their lives for the worst. A small fraction of people who read an article or a headline see a correction that is made about that same story later, and even fewer than that are likely to change their new associations and worldviews based on that correction that they happen to read. This means that publishing fast and incorrect information instills the belief in some people that the incorrect information is fact, and that's the case even if you run a correction later, and there's little that can be done to change that. How horrifying would it be to be the target of such a piece, to be arbitrarily and incorrectly smeared, to be associated with pedophilia or fraud? The dangers of this method of reporting, then, may very well outweigh the benefits, at least until there are better mechanisms for some kind of fact-checking, and ideally better means of correcting the record, both the published record but also the record of events in people's minds. This is a big part of why, by the way, journalism has traditionally been focused on publishing less but more correct information. 
as opposed to a whole lot of maybe sometimes correct stories. There's often more money in the latter, in publishing faster and a greater quantity of stories about whatever, but the former, being more careful and intentional, allows us to be informed about our world using actual data and actual information that has been verified. As soon as these entities, these periodicals that we rely on to help us understand the shape of things, how the world actually is, as soon as they go soft and present us with less concrete information, we are suddenly prey to not knowing what's going on and having no real solid means of determining fact from fiction no solid ground to stand on in making any kind of assertion or understanding what's happening around us. And unfortunately, this has become the norm within some facets of journalism already. In the political sphere, especially, the manipulation of one's audience to make them believe certain things about the world has been escalated to an art form by some networks, including Fox News. And I think that they are the undisputed masters of this, but to a lesser degree by other entities like the Huffington Post. These skewed perceptions offer editorial alongside and intertwined with fact. And the result, after years of exposure to this, is an audience that no longer has a solid, unbiased yardstick against which to measure new information that they come into contact with. It's no wonder, then, that the politicians and pundits can throw around fake numbers and bold-faced lies with such confidence and impunity because they trust their audience either won't care or won't know because they have been conditioned in that way. This is another huge issue that the journalism world is currently wrestling with. How do you expose a network as little better than propaganda to the people who watch and love it especially when they have been primed by that propaganda to not trust anyone outside of that propaganda's network. Outside information is weighed differently by them. And in a lot of cases, even hard, demonstrable facts fail to break through to the part of their brain that allows them to change their perspective, to take in new information that runs contrary to what they believe they know about the world. I've seen a few different approaches that have tried to counter this, that have tried to break through, though all of them are so new that it will likely be some time before we know if they work or if they simply continue to ricochet off all those very strong partisan force fields that have been erected. ProPublica, for one, has divided their journalists out into individual beats, so those reporters are more publicly the face of unbiased, clean and clear reporting in their particular area of expertise. They're also explaining more about the work that they do and what those focuses mean and how they collect their information. This element of transparency is a trend that a lot of networks, both big and small, are picking up on right now. I think that even the most hard-nosed journalist is beginning to see that verifiable facts don't matter to some people anymore. And lacking that, as a whammy to throw down on the skeptics, they need to be able to show that they themselves and the work they conduct is beyond reproach, outside of the pieces that they write. One more major issue that journalism is facing right now is the advent of big data and how this information is reported upon. I've spoken at greater length about big data, 
with a capital B and a capital D in a past episode. But the quick summary is that it is a whole hell of a lot of numbers crunched together by computers, and the software in those computers then filter the data in different ways, and then attempt to find meaning in the relationships between these numbers, where we, humans, would only see millions upon millions of rows on a spreadsheet. On one hand, it is amazing that we suddenly have access to so much information, and some of it quite useful. On the other hand, not all of it is useful, but even the stuff that is of doubtful utility, or that may seem like it has utility but in fact doesn't, might still be reported to people who don't know the difference and who don't know how to make use of the data they're being given. An increasingly important responsibility for journalists, then, will be to report on the meaning of these numbers, rather than simply repeating these numbers back to their audiences. We also need to remember that these crunched numbers are only as good as the data that is collected before being fed into the machines. Which is to say, data can be biased, because the people collecting it can be biased, and the people writing the software can be biased, and the people interpreting it on the other end can be biased. And if we put too much stock in these numbers, we may make decisions that a quick sniff test would have otherwise told us were bad ideas. That said, there is a lot of hidden potential in all those columns and rows. And if a subset of journalists can become especially skilled at deriving facts from these numbers, or even manipulating the algorithms and the other systems that process the numbers to begin with, then we'll be in much better shape than we are now. We're at a moment in time when we primarily use them to make predictions about elections and sports, and I think there is a whole lot more potential locked within this subset of reporting. It's important that we get all of this right. It's important because a free and open press is vital as a means of countering the power that masses in political and economic and other institutions. It's important because any kind of republic requires an informed electorate, and journalism is the best way we have figured out to make more people informed so far. But it's also important because if we do it wrong, if we swerve too far in one direction or another, we move uncomfortably close to losing other rights and benefits that are afforded to liberal cultures. And liberal, I'm using in the true sense of the word, meaning to be open to change and to be pluralistic and progressive rather than representing any particular political party within a liberal republic. And so those benefits are things that we want to be able to maintain and ensuring that our journalistic system remains strong is one of the ways that we ensure that we continue to have any rights at all. The freedom of speech is reinforced and amplified by a healthy press. Safety and security is maintained when we are capable of understanding right versus wrong and fact versus fiction and complex but cohesive versus superficial lies that just happen to be easier to share. We run a risk of amplifying the wrong messages if we get this wrong and of not knowing which we actually believe to be the right ones. And from there, we run the risk of working those ideas into our understanding of the world and of reality, and in turn ending up with a warped sense of both. This is not just a matter of building a better newspaper and making sure we're not imbibing mistruths. 
This is a matter of ensuring that whatever comes next, whatever movements and technologies and conflicts we face, we will be armored up for it. We'll be primed to receive information, to understand it, and to work it into our worldview, and then move forward taking the most correct path possible. So how do we make this happen? I don't think we've seen a 100% correct model yet. It could be that we need to figure out a confluence of what exists today. It could be something entirely new that wipes the board clean. The journalism world is an unstable place in the best of times, and this is certainly not the best of times for that particular industry. Something that likely won't change anytime soon is the necessity of a business model to have some means of paying the bills. So in the meantime, while we are here at the in-between point between where we have been and where we would like to be, it's a good idea to figure out how your journalistic entities of choice make a living so you can contribute some money or some clicks or some social media attention to those that help you stay informed and engaged. This has actually been a resolution for me over the past couple of years to try to ensure that I spend more of my money, put it where my mouth is, and try to support the journalistic entities that I feel are doing the best possible job. So it's something to think about. It's one way to act on this immediately, whatever that future happens to look like, to sustain the good stuff in the time between. Something else to focus on in the meantime is establishing a concrete personal reality informed by a round variety of sources and by uncomfortable truths and demonstrable facts. I find that this requires regularly consuming very widely from a large number of different sources rather than sticking with just one website, one aggregator, or just a few different talking heads that all agree with each other to get your news. And if you find a good balance, a collection of different sources that allow you to understand the world a little bit better and more roundly, you might consider sharing those sources to curate and share that information with other people in some way. You can share the information that you've gleaned or the connections that you've made as a result of it, or even just share links to all those different pieces, the sources that you've found and that you find work well together that help you paint a more complete picture of the world. Because it's not an easy thing to do. It takes some effort. And not everyone has the time or feels they have the time. And not everyone understands the benefits of having a well-rounded collection of information resources until one is handed them and is able to see the difference. And who knows, we may even find that as a result of efforts like this, of being responsible for our own complete informational picture and making a good use of what's already available, we as a wonderful byproduct become a moderately smarter mob. This episode of Let's Know Things is brought to you by its wonderful listeners, if you have a spare second, click on over to iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts and, and leave a quick review or just leave some stars. It helps a great deal in helping other people find the show. And that helps me continue to make the show, as does contributing monetarily or sharing it with a friend who you think is the right kind of geeky who might enjoy it. If you go to letsknowthings.com and click on Contribute, 
you will find links to a bunch of different options in addition to those that I just mentioned. So thank you so much if you've contributed in some way already. Thank you for those who are continuing to contribute, and thank you in advance for those who are considering doing so. I very much appreciate it. Also at letsnotethings.com, you can find the show notes for this episode and every episode. If you are not checking out those show notes, you are missing part of the conversation. I list links quite liberally for each and every episode, so there's a lot of additional excellent reading to take in with all of these topics that I am discussing. The show is also sponsored by HostGator. HostGator has been my hosting company for many wonderful years. They are a pleasure to work with. And if you go to HostGator.com LKT, you will receive a discount off of their already excellent prices in addition to helping the show. So if you're thinking of starting a blog or a portfolio or a website for your business or a road trip that you're about to do, they are an excellent option and they have offerings for all different shapes and sizes of projects. That's hostgator.com slash LKT. And the show is also sponsored by Audible. If you go to audibletrial.com slash LKT, you will receive a month of Audible for free. You will also get an audiobook of your choice. And if you are lacking for a book to spend that free credit on, might I suggest you check out The Attention Merchants by Tim Wu. This book is about something that I've spoken about quite a bit on this show, actually. The modern economy, and especially the online, the electronic economy of clicks and such, but it gets even more granular than that because it talks about the accumulating and reselling of attention. And a click is one metric by which you try to measure attention and interaction. But in reality, this accumulating and reselling has been going on for a very long time. He goes back into the history of that, of early television, and even before that, but then shows the evolution of this from something that was a very clever means of doing business into something that has shaped the very world that we live in. And if you ever feel that you have trouble focusing, and if you ever feel that you're being bombarded by marketing messages all day, every day, this book does an excellent job of explaining why and where we are going next with this. And even why a reality TV star, why it makes sense that somebody like that would end up being in politics and have a natural advantage in doing so. And so in showing how a lot of these different disparate topics are connected, this book does an excellent job of painting that larger picture in terms of economics, in terms of technology, and in terms of society. So that is The Attention Merchants by author Tim Wu the guy who coined the term net neutrality, by the way. And that is very much worth checking out, whether you grab it at your local library, local indie bookstore, your Kindle, your Kobo. But you can also get the audiobook version for free via Audible by going to audibletrial.com LKT. Great way to get a free, interesting book while also helping out the show. As I mentioned, if you go to letsknowthings.com, you will find show notes and you can find all kinds of ways to contribute to the show. But you will also find a sign-up form for the Let's Know Things newsletter, which is free and sent out every Monday. And it's really less a newsletter and more a collection of interesting things. Little known fact, the show actually started out as a newsletter that was a collection of interesting things. So this is the spiritual successor to that. 
but you can sign up for it there at letsnotethings.com. Receive that every week. That is my mechanism, as I mentioned in this episode, of sharing what I can from my collection of sources that I have found to be verifiable and excellent and which provide a well-rounded view of the world. You can find Let's Know Things on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Let's Know Things. You can find out more about me and my work at colin.io. My blog is xllifestyle.com, and you can find me personally all over the internet at Colin is my name. Thank you so very much for listening. I am Colin Wright, and I will talk to you again next week. Thank mm-hmm. you.